One of the most remarkable features of the current crisis in both the church and society is the virtual collapse of fatherhood. The fact that when it's encountered, it's so often aggressively attacked, mocked, and belittled when it's encountered. Fatherhood is not valued by our society at large, nor by many ailments in the church, whether we're speaking of parishes, dioceses, or congregations. It wasn't always this way. For example, uh, from ancient times, and I think uh, right up till 1983 in the New Code, I think that's when it changed, if a priest were made pastor of parish, he was there for life. The bishop could ask him to move, but he's free to refuse and couldn't be removed without Rome getting involved. Because the permanent pastor wasn't going anywhere, because he was going to be buried there with his people, he had a vested interest in their holiness, a vested interest in addressing the pastoral problems of his people. And he couldn't just tell himself, well, you know, I only have six years in this parish. The next guy is going to have to solve the problems. Let's take one example. Uh, every, a, a parish, this is not a local parish, but in a local parish it has geographic boundaries. Within that boundaries, everything belongs to the pastor. That means that every abortion mill belongs to a local pastor. Every abortion mill. And if they were taking it serious, they'd be down there with their people because they know they have to answer for that abortion mill. They have to answer for that strip club. They have to answer for that bad bar. They have to answer for every Protestant church. Those all belong to a pastor. This is a military occupation of planet Earth. And everything, all the responsibilities divided up. Those also belong to the bishop, by the matter. But anyway, the old-time pastor was expected to be the father of his parish. Now, I spent eight years working next to a parish. It was interesting, it's Holy Family Parish. But at that parish, the pastor had been there since World War II, over 60 years. What a parish. Just amazing. What an influence this pastor had. It was the only part of the inner city that hadn't completely fallen apart. He really was the father of his people. He knew his people, and they loved him. And he had a real moral, and he had a real spiritual power over his people. He was their father. He wasn't going to leave them. They knew that, and they were secure in that. He was their father. He was their father. It's another ancient tradition of the church that's been renewed. Fatherhood isn't valued by our society at large either. But it wasn't always this way. Today on the Feast of the Holy Family, we'll take some time today considering typical features of the family before this modern disaster, and then we'll compare that with the modern situation in all too many homes with a more particular focus on fathers. With the usual edit, cutting, and pasting, we rely principally on a work, a really good work written in the 80s, late 80s, by James B. Stenson. It's called Successful Fathers. James B. Stenson, Successful Fathers. It's a great little booklet. James Stenson. What follows is a composite description of a typical family in the Western world. That is to say, the U.S., Canada, Australia, Europe, much of Latin America. Until, up until the early years of the 20th century, certainly in many parts 
of the Western world. It would have gone much later than that. But up to the early years of the 20th century, this would have been typical. Number one, the home was essentially a small business, a place of work. Father and mother worked together as senior partners in an ongoing business enterprise, whether farming, craftsmanship, trade, or some other livelihood. The house was filled with tools and work implements, and the children constantly saw their parents at work, each in different but complementary responsibilities. Number two, the children played a low-level but necessary part in this enterprise. Naturally, the smallest children spent most of their time playing. The older children, however, did work that was needed around the house, chopping wood, drawing water, hauling materials, preparing meals from scratch, and the like. This work, being necessary, involved responsibility and therefore conveyed a sense of self-worth. Everyone in the family understood that the children's cooperation, that is to say their obedience to their parents' direction, was essential, demanded, and expected. Number three. As children grew, they would take on increased levels of responsibility. By early adolescence, they'd be working alongside their parents in a personal apprenticeship, sharing the day-to-day tasks of making the family work. A serious preoccupation with play and amusement was something for the youngest children. These adolescents were more like adults than children, and they thought of themselves that way. Number four, because cash materials were scarce, Everyone in the family had to wait for things and to earn them. Children thus acquired a sense of time and a sense of the relationship between effort and results. Living on or close to the land taught some truths about life. Some things have to be earned. Some things can't be hurried. Some things are inherently out of anyone's control. Relative poverty led to an appreciation of simple essentials, regular nourishment, warm shelter, good health, the confidence of being loved by family and friends. For everything else, the children learned to make do or to do without. Number five, practically every family had other adults aside from the mother and father associated with it. Grandparents, unmarried aunts and uncles, hired help, close friends of the family. Thus children perceived a range of adult personalities and could therefore thereby form a generalized concept of adulthood. Frequently, the children could see these adults, both by word and deed, show respect to their parents. This reinforced their parents' authority and highlighted those traits worthy of emulation. Sometimes, in case of conflict between parent and child, these other adults would support the parent's position. Your father's right. You should listen to him. In a sense, the children were overpowered by the adults who shared a common view of right and wrong. Adolescent rebellion could not go far against this wall of confident adult consensus. Number six, conversation reading were the principal ways in which young people learned about adult life and the world outside the family. At home, recreation centered around talk, that is to say, the life of the mind. Storytelling, games, family history, Bible reading, friendly debates, discussions of issues and events, all this was the normal intake of children listening to their parents and the family's adult friends. A big threshold was crossed when the older children were welcomed into this circle of discussion, having their opinions listened to and respected. Number seven, 
Because future occupational positions were more or less fixed, and in any event, the responsibility of the grown children themselves, parents did not think over much about the children's eventual careers. Rather, they thought in terms of their children's future character. Their efforts in the children's upbringing derived directly from a set of questions. Will the children grow up to be self-reliant, competent, responsible adults as soon as possible before they're out of their teens? Will they be honest, level-headed, and honorable, bringing esteem to our family? Will they live according to our moral principles and pass those on to our grandchildren? Will our daughters and sons marry spouses who share our principles? Will their marriages be stable, permanent, and happy? Will our children remain chaste and modest? Will every aspect of their courtship and marriage remain worthy of our approval and God's? Can we count on our children to honor and respect us in our old age? Number eight. Finally, families are united in prayer and religious conviction. Children saw both live, parents live according to God's word, trusting his merciful care. Since so much of life was perilous and essentially out of control, through sickness, accident, drought, famine, war, the whole family was conscious of their dependence on God. Prayer was important, necessary, habitual. It added spiritual strength to people who were strong already. Okay, so that's a summary of the typical family in the Western world up to perhaps a century ago. James Stenson. A multitude of powerful changes in family life over the past decades have seriously affected the formative, character-building relationship between parents and children. The traditional role of father has been especially hard hit. <clears throat> in the span of two full generations, since he's writing in the 80s, uh, we're now in the third generation, two broad social developments have drastically altered family life. First is the unprecedented level of prosperity enjoyed by the middle class. It's no exaggeration to say our standard of living has greatly exceeded the wildest ambitions of material success that our forebears dreamed about at the turn of the last century. In a real sense, we have all become very rich. Now that parenthetical remark, if the young people here, uh, if you think that's exaggeration, that we've all become very rich, we'll just consider one thing that I'm sure all of you haven't thought much about and take for granted, and that is that you all have shoes. And they probably all fit. I bet good money there's older people here that didn't have shoes when they were little. I know for a fact there's plenty of older people here that didn't have shoes that fit. Probably not even until they were adults. We're very rich. The second social development that has drastically altered family life is the rise of mass electronic communication. It's introduced powerful images ideas, values, and authority figures in the life of the family. And he's writing before the Internet. It may be said that the natural relationship between parents and children has been complicated by the presence of strangers within the home. Entertainers, athletes, TV stars, news announcers, advertisers, and a host of other personalities. So the two social developments have drastically affected family life, the great rise in prosperity and material well-being, and the development of electronic mass media. Stenson, these two developments have seriously altered the formative dynamics between parents and children. When we compare the situation today with that previously described, the differences are striking. Number one, middle-class children today almost never see their father work. Dad leaves the house in the morning, 
arrives tired at night, often quite late. The children do not see him exercise his personal powers of mind and will while dealing with the outside world. They do not witness his character in action on the job, frequently under stress. They therefore lack his model of the virtues in action, discerning judgment, responsible control of events, personal toughness in solving problems, self-control in dealing with setbacks and difficulties. When they do see Dad around the house, they generally see him at leisure, when his virtues, so to speak, are on idle. Even when he does some manual work around the house, this work is more like a leisure activity, a relatively enjoyable break from the pressures of his serious livelihood. The children seldom join in because they themselves are otherwise occupied with leisure activities of their own. Pressures for a second income frequently keep mom also out of the house and out of sight. Thus, her own example of personal on-the-job strength is, committed, is diminished considerably. What is left for the children to see then? They see their parents mostly at rest, especially their father, and most especially with television. Unfortunately, serious strengths of character do not normally shine forth in leisurely amusements, and they never shine forth at all in front of the glowing tube. In a lot of homes, a huge percentage of homes, the television really takes the place of the family altar. Even in homes with a family altar, the television frequently has pride of place. For those with eyes to see, that means something. It certainly means something to the children. Stenson, number two. The home itself has become a place of play rather than work. Whereas formerly tool and work implements about in the home and toys and playthings were scarce, today the situation is reversed. Tools are tucked out of sight while playthings are everywhere. Televisions, DVDs, computers, stereos, electronic games, boxes of toys, etc., etc. Oftentimes books are scarce. These leisure devices, combined with soft furniture and efficient healing and cooling systems, make the modern home an exceedingly comfortable place. For the parents, this leisure is a welcome and necessary change of pace. For the children, and this is the main point here, for the children, the surroundings and comfort and play are the only world that they know. For the children, their surroundings of comfort and play are the only world they know. They have no strenuous tasks to relax from. Their entire universe of experience consists of comfort and amusement. Life is play. A visitor from another century would be astonished at the role reversal in the modern family. In former times, the children would share in the adults' activities. Today, the parents are given over to the children's preoccupations, which are principally amusement. Now, another parenthetical remark. This, uh, in the larger context of society, is easy to see if we briefly consider architecture. Architecture has a meaning. <clears throat> For example, if you were to visit a medieval European village, what would be the most prominent structure? Be the church. That's an architectural statement telling you what, generally speaking, what was most important or valued in that society. It was God. If today you were to visit a small town in Texas, what is the most prominent structure? It's the football stadium. 
That's an architectural ta- statement telling you what, generally speaking, is the most important or valued in that society, which is amusements. Stenson, number three. Conversation with a father and other adults is minimal. If a father spent much time talking with his children about his life outside their experience, that is, his job and his personal history, his concerns and worries, his opinions and convictions, he could compensate considerably for his absence during most of the children's waking hours. The children would learn at least something about his character. Such father-children discussion was common until the invention of television. But studies show that talk of any sort between fathers and children frequently totals less than 20 minutes a day. Really serious conversations by which children learn about dad's life and character are extremely rare. Number four, older children and adolescents today function as consumers, not producers. In most middle-class households, the child's active labor is not really necessary. Many parents, in fact, find it easier in the long run to do the children's chores themselves rather than nag incessantly. In such households, canny children can learn to evade work by delaying action. Sooner or later, the parents will give up and let the kids get on with their own business, which is amusement. The lifetime habits of amusement, which in former ages dropped off sharply at puberty, now continue more or less intact until the early 20s or even later. Lifetime habits of amusement, which formerly dropped off sharply at puberty, now continue more or less intact until the 20s or even later. If one outlook on life is formed largely through personal experience, we should not be surprised at the relentless pleasure-seeking of so many young people. A substantial number of our young adults arrive at their 20s. Now remember, he's writing in the 80s. A substantial number of our young adults arrive in their 20s with almost no experience of productive, satisfying work. Instead, most of their experience is centered on leisure activity, play, and entertainment. Small wonder they come to equate happiness with amusement. Number five, adult society outside the family also fails to make responsible demands of older children and adolescents. We can safely make at least one generalization. Compared with their counterparts in the middle 50s and earlier, today's high school students do not work as hard or learn as much about adult-level standards of professional performance. Though the very brightest students in top-track courses still receive a reasonably rigorous intellectual challenge, most of the rest do not receive anything resembling an introduction to adult responsibility. Well, that's putting it lightly. Uh, that was written in the 80s. Just think some of the lovely things the children are being exposed to in the schools in this post-Clinton era. So one of my friends, he's the father of seven homeschooled kids, says, we often told our Catholic friends that if your kids aren't getting a Catholic education, they're getting a pagan education. Thank the good Lord for homeschooling this very few true moral private schools that still exist. Number six, television and other entertainment media become the principal means by which children form concepts of adult life. The rise of television as an authority figure, diminishing or even replacing that of parents and other adults, has been one of the most subtle and significant social changes of the last few decades. I'd add sinister. It is natural for children and adolescents to imitate, 
most unconsciously, adults who serve as models of personal strength and accomplishment. For centuries, it was the father who filled this role. But today's children seldom witness their father displaying his character strengths outside the home. Moreover, the children almost never see other adults show respect towards dad. And finally, since TV watching has practically eliminated serious conversation between dad and his children, whereby the children could learn of dad and his strengths at least secondhand, the children are left with a weak overall picture of their father's character. Dad appears as a relatively weak individual, friendly, likable, leisure-oriented, somewhat dull, but not really deserving of high respect. Every home with a much-used television presents children with an array of authoritative adult figures, musicians, dramatic actors and actresses, talk show hosts, comedians, and miscellaneous celebrities. Studies have documented how these figures come to be accepted in the home, especially the children, as intimate family acquaintances. The key point is this. These people radiate a power, or at least an illusion of power, that overshadows, as it were, the children's perception of their father's strength of character. Then our tamers seem to possess in superabundance those qualities that older children and adolescents long for. They appear confident, self-assured, supremely competent, socially and financially successful, popular and respected, sophisticated, brimming with unrestrained energy. They are thus, in effect, rivals for the children's attention and emulation. Though they comprise an infinitesimal percentage of our population, popular entertainers exercise a direct effect on the way young people talk, think, dress, and behave. An extraordinary percentage of adolescent conversation deals with the doings and perceived characters of singers, comedians, and other television personalities that I might add you wouldn't let in your house. Young people seldom talk seriously about any profession other than entertainment. When they do discuss other lines of work, law, medicine, law enforcement, business, etc., their concepts reflect largely what they've seen dramatized on television. Small wonder that such a sizable proportion of young people display bewilderment, apprehension, and lack of realistic self-confidence when they reach full adulthood in their 20s or later. Since childhood, their images of adult life have been literally illusions. And their father unwittingly has done little to anchor them in reality. His own life has not given counterweight to the television's influence. Indeed, he has often been a quietly devoted part of the TV audience. Not much strength or effective direction can emanate from an armchair. Seven. Finally, the practice of religion is seldom a significant part of family life. Throughout history, periods of great prosperity have always seen a rapid decline in religious belief and practice. Wealth gives us the illusion that we have life under control. Well, not to worry, I guess the problem of great prosperity is probably going to be addressed in a rather drastic fashion. Among other things, our prosperity has meant significantly less prayer. A large percentage of our children hardly ever experience prayer in their lives at home. They almost never see their father pray. For very young children, the sight of their father praying is important to their lifelong concept of God. If even dad shows his affection and respect to God, then God must be all-powerful indeed. He must be a father himself, loving, protective, all-knowing, capable of doing everything. 
As children grow older, their father's attitude towards God has deeper, more subtle effects. By his attitudes and actions, the father says, in effect, this is the correct way by which we adults comport ourselves in the world, whether we feel like it or not. This is the way we please God, our Father, and live honorably among other men and women. Religious conviction is one of the greatest strengths in a person's life. It firms up judgment, purpose, confidence, self-control. The children are looking for these things, eager for them. If they see this preeminent strength in their father, they are likely to adopt it themselves. But if it's missing, if it's missing, they will find other values elsewhere. Surrounded by allurements of the materialistic culture, they can swiftly adopt the rationalized life outlook of modern materialism. Men are just clever animals. Life ends with death. Morality is merely a social convention. Religion is a sham. Life's purpose is the pursuit of pleasure and money and power. In short, as children approach young adulthood, they face an existential choice, religious faith or materialistic faith. That choice seems to depend enormously on the religious leadership of their father. There's certainly a lot here to ponder and pray about for married couples to talk about. Another occasion we'll consider some practical approaches to the current challenges. I'll close today with one last thought on fatherhood. It's a, uh, from a homeschooling father, a thought. Quote, the Christian life is warfare. Traditional Catholic homeschoolers are on the front lines, whether they realize it or not. Thus, if they don't realize it, they will not be sufficiently armed, and they will and are being taken out. Most importantly, the dad must be the spiritual head, and he must pull his head out of the world and see that his battle is against principalities and powers, and not against flesh and blood or in the political arena of secular and church politics. Close quote. The Christian life is warfare. And the people in the mass media are not our allies. The dad must be the spiritual head. He must pull his head out of the world and see it as it battles against principalities and powers, and not against flesh and blood, or in a political arena of secular and church politics. <laughs>